Uh, could I ask you, please, inside your handout, you should find a little leaflet like this. It's an insert, which is an outline of what I'd like to talk about. Please have that in front of you. It will help make sense of the next little while. Uh, there's a couple of Bible verses uh, just to explain why they look slightly different from the readings that you had. I apologise, I've printed them from the New International Version from 2011, whereas your Bibles are from 1984, which... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, let's not go there. It's the same problem in our church as well. But um, yeah, so that's the only reason there's a slight change in, in contemporary language. Um, this is a big topic, of course, uh, that I want to speak about this morning, sexuality and sanctification, and in particular, thinking about same-sex attraction. Uh, it's a difficult topic. It's a confronting topic. And in many ways, for Christians, it's a confusing topic. Let me say what I'm not going to address this morning. I'm not going to talk about the subject of same-sex marriage and marriage equality and all that kind of stuff. I understand Graham actually talked about that with you earlier in the year. I'm just going to put that to one side. Instead, what I'd like to speak about this morning is how we care for people in our community uh, who long to live lives that honour Jesus in submission to his word and yet, and yet nevertheless in the matters of sexuality, uh, this is complicated and hard. In particular, what I want us to do is try and avoid two of the extremes that I think Christians have fallen into in recent times when it comes to thinking about matters to do with sexuality and particularly same-sex attraction. One extreme, which I think is wrong, is that there are some Christians who have just ceased to believe that the Bible is the word of God and therefore to say that homosexuality is okay in our day and age. That's not right. Equally, I think there are some, uh, I doubt in this church, but there are some in some places uh, who I would describe as being like knee-jerk fundamentalists who when they hear about homosexuality, they respond by name-calling and saying things like homosexuality is an abomination before God. That's also not the right way to respond because there is no love or grace in that. I want us to think about how both are wrong, but nevertheless how the Bible shows and instructs us on how to live. If you look at your handout, there's three points that I'd like to cover. Firstly, thinking theologically about same-sex attraction. Secondly, some, part, some tricky pastoral questions. And then over the page, thirdly, some practical implications. And that's what we'll cover for the next little while. Uh, firstly, thinking theologically about same-sex attraction, we start with 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and the passage that was read to us before and just those first few verses. Let me read them again. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, this is what you might say one of the go-to verses when it comes to thinking about Christians and same-sex attraction. It's one of the go-to verses because of verse 9, which is very clear. Men who have sex with men will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is quite straightforward at one level. And yet, there is more going on in 1 Corinthians 6 than simply a comment about sexuality. I presume you can see that from the way in which Paul has written what he's said. Firstly, all kinds of sexual sin will disqualify you from the kingdom of God. That's kind of obvious from the passage, isn't it? Look at verse 9. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor, adul nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men will inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is talking about more than just homosexuality. He's talking about any kind of sexual immorality. But equally, it's not just all kinds of sexual sin. It's all kinds of sin, not just sexual ones. So look at verse 10. Nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, 
nor slanderers, nor swindlers. None will inherit the kingdom of God. Now I want to start here because I'm really trying to make the very simple point that all of us have committed those sins at some point. Uh, To certain degrees, of course. If you think you haven't, well, then you've just committed the sin of lying, so we'll deal with that at a different time. What I'm saying here is that at one level, the Bible is no more against homosexuality than it is against any sin which will disqualify you from the kingdom of God. To use the common metaphor, there is no such thing as straight. We are all broken. We are all crooked. We are all bent in some way. Uh, Here's one of the ways in which I try and explain that, uh, particularly to the uni students and the young workers who I work with. Um, I like to say that all of us are like bouquets, not pot plants. We're all like bouquets, not pot plants. Now, you get the difference between a bouquet and a pot plant, right? A bouquet, no matter how good it looks, it's dead. A pot plant, well, if you remember to water it, which I don't, but if you did, it would still be alive. The point is, all of us are broken. We are all crooked. We are all, to use the words that Paul used in Ephesians 2, we're all dead in our transgressions. And so the starting point for thinking about same-sex attraction is to recognise that all of us are sinners and all of us need the redeeming grace of the Lord Jesus. You know, one of the most striking things about Jesus' ministry on earth is that the the people who he hung out most most with in society were the tax collectors. Uh, You might not be aware of this, but if you want to know what the modern-day equivalent of a tax collector is, to understand how tax collectors were viewed by the rest of society. This sounds shocking, but this is the only way to describe it. The modern-day equivalent of a tax collector is what is a pedophile. So for Jesus to spend time with such people because they needed forgiveness, that's a measure of how great his love is for us. Okay, so there's point one. All of us are broken. So secondly then, all of us can be washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those first two verses of 1 Corinthians 6, thankfully Paul doesn't stop there. If he did, it would be pretty bleak. But look at how he goes on in verse 11. And that is what some of you were, he says. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul uses three different pictures to describe what it is that Jesus has done for us who, if he had not intervened, we would not inherit the kingdom of God. He says there, firstly, you were washed. He says, secondly, you were sanctified. Now, just so you understand, the word sanctified here means to be made holy. He doesn't mean the process of being made more and more godly day by day. I think he actually means to be made holy once and for all by his blood. And the third image there is you were justified. Washed, sanctified, and justified. And the most important thing to notice in verse 11 there uh, is the way in which Jesus, uh, the way in which Paul says that these things took place. He puts them passively. They are not things that we have done to ourselves. They are things that Jesus has done for us. So the gospel is not you washed yourself. The gospel is you were washed. The gospel is not you sanctified yourself. You have been sanctified. The gospel is not you justified yourself. 
you were justified. It's not that we have paid off our debts. It's not that we've earned our favour before God. The gospel is that we have been bought at a great price. And we'll see in a moment that that price, of course, is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, all of us are broken. All of us can be washed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once we are, thirdly then, all of us are to flee sexual immorality. And that brings us to the last part of 1 Corinthians 6. If you have a look in your handout there, 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, Paul continues. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Having started by reminding us of the ways in which we cannot inherit the kingdom of God, reassured us that because of what Jesus has done, we have been washed, sanctified and justified. Paul's conclusion, verse 18, is flee sexual immorality. Don't give in to it. Don't embrace it. And what Paul is doing here with one example is reminding us of what the whole Christian life is like. The Christian life is about not giving in to sinful desires, whatever they are for you or for me. Part of that is because the desire itself is not inherently sinful necessarily. Just as the cause of desires can't often be identified, what is sinful is our conduct and whether we choose to embrace such things. Let me take a step back for a moment and uh, try and help you understand the landscape that we're in when we talk about same-sex attraction. Uh, you'll see at the bottom of your handout on the reverse page that I've given you some further reading, and I'll say something about this later, but uh, the second book there by a guy called Mark Yarhouse. Uh, Mark Yarhouse is an American psychologist, a Christian man, uh, who's done an enormous amount of research into this particular topic. What he tries to do is distinguish between, in the area of same-sex attraction, attraction orientation and identity. Attraction, orientation and identity. And his research, which uh, is well recognised, demonstrates that there's a certain percentage of the population who have a same-sex attraction of some type. There's a smaller percentage who would, you might say, are oriented in that way, that is, same-sex attraction is more than just fleeting or occasional, but is a significant, about, a significant part of who they are. And then there's an even smaller group who identify as gay or lesbian. Attraction, orientation, identity. You understand the three concepts or categories I'm talking about here? Here's the question. What do you think the prevalence is in the Australian population of people who are same-sex oriented? What do you think the percentage is? Now, I'm sure if I were to ask you to actually reply, we'd probably come up with numbers, oh, I'm not really sure, maybe 30, 40, 50%. I don't know. Certainly if you watch TV, uh, you'd assume that there's a large number of the population who are same-sex oriented. In America, and think what you will of America, I think they're probably more libertarian than we are in Australia. In America, the best research suggests 2 to 3% of the population are same-sex oriented. 2 to 3%. Like I said, that's not what you'd 
assume if you just looked at popular culture, but that does tell you something about the prevalence or the scope that we're describing. Back to the passage, what the Apostle Paul says is that we are now temples of the Holy Spirit. And that we're temples of the Holy Spirit, I think, is a reminder, it's proof that God has not given up on us. He dwells in us by his Spirit. And the picture, I think, that the temple of the Holy Spirit is meant to bring to mind is of that picture of creation where God makes Adam and Eve and he breathes life into people, actually the life in them. What the Holy Spirit is doing, I think, from 1 Corinthians 6, the Holy Spirit is doing that slow and oftentimes painful process of remaking us into a new creation. Here's an image that might help you understand that. Uh, I don't know if anyone here has had an organ transplant. I'm going to take a punt and assume that no one here has. But you, you understand what happens when you have an organ transplant. Uh, the old gets taken away and a new one gets quite literally inserted and plugged in. Uh, thing about organ transplants is, generally speaking, you don't perform the operation on yourself. That'd be slightly risky, I suspect. Uh, slightly complicated as well. Someone else does the inserting. And even after the organ goes in, it takes a while before it starts to function properly and to operate. The work of the Holy Spirit takes time. But he is in each of us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 6 is that if the Holy Spirit dwells in us, if as it says there in verse 20, you have been bought at a great price. The price it cost for your remaking was the death of the Lord Jesus. Paul will go on to say in verse 20, honour God with your body. Honour God with your body. Notice the two things that are being said here in 1 Corinthians 6. Flee from sexual immorality and honour God with your body. They're both important, aren't they? Not just to run away from something, but to run towards something. To be captured by an even more powerful vision, not just of avoiding things, but of who we are meant to be, who God is remaking us into each day by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that's all true, then part of what this means, I think, is that in the end, to come back to that topic of uh, that categories, those categories of attraction, orientation and identity... What this is saying is that your sexuality is not the defining marker of your identity. The defining marker of your identity is as someone who has been bought by Christ, in whom the Holy Spirit lives. The defining marker of identity is as those who are broken but are being remade each day more and more in the image of Christ. Let me give you a different illustration to try and explain that point. And this is on the matter of identity and, in particular, the topic of ethnicity. So I thought I'd talk about myself here. Uh, at this point, you can tell, having met me now for you know, all of 20 minutes, that uh, I look Chinese, but I sound Australian. Right? That's kind of obvious. Uh, and that plays out in interesting ways in my life. I've kind of actually got both parts of this uh, in my identity, in my ethnic uh, background. Uh, I'm Chinese in the sense that both my parents are Chinese, and so therefore I'm, I'm full Chinese, and therefore there's certain things that I do as a Chinese-type person. You know, we celebrate Chinese New Year, 
Uh, I, I actually genuinely think that table tennis is an Olympic sport. Um, <laughs> and like most Chinese, I could play the piano before I could walk. So, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, if you know a Chinese person, you know what I mean here. So there's that part of me. So I am Chinese. But I'm also very Australian. I was born in Australia. Uh, I've lived all my life in Australia. I love cricket, the beach. Uh, I can't speak a word of Chinese. <laughs> That's pretty bad. And uh, this, this is really, really bad. When I go to places like Hong Kong and Singapore, I feel overwhelmed by all the Asians. Yeah. Now, <laughs> it's bad enough, you don't want me to say it, but it's true, okay? So it's, <laughs> you're not allowed to say that, by the way. If you say it, it's racist, I'm allowed to say that. Um, my wife, Wendy, who you can see down here at the front, she's Caucasian, so we have mixed-race children. They are Eurasian. Uh, we've actually made up a new word to describe them. They're half Chinese, half Australian. Uh, that word is Phasian, for fake Asians, because that's, that's pretty much what they are. Uh, those are comments about my ethnic identity, but they're not how I self-identify. If you ask me, who am I? You ask me to introduce myself. If you ask me to explain who I am and why I am, Here's what I'll say. I'm a child of Christ. I've been bought by his blood. And the Holy Spirit lives in me, making me more and more like Christ each day, I pray. That's the marker of who I am. That's my identity. Okay, you still with me? It's a fairly heavy start, but I want to deal with the theological matters before we then try and turn to some specific pastoral questions in this area of same-sex attraction. And you'll see the first of those at the bottom of the page there, Point two, some tricky pastoral questions. Firstly, should we pray for healing? What I'm describing here is a situation where a Christian man or woman who has same-sex attraction, possibly even orientation, longs to be free from such things. Should we pray for healing for them? Should we engage in what's been called in recent years things like reparation therapy, that is counselling and so on, that might help them to change their orientation? Mark Yarhouse, uh, the psychologist researcher who I referred to before, he says that the best research globally suggests that a few people with a gay orientation experience some degree of change in that orientation. Do you hear what I'm saying there? A few people experience some degree of change. In other words, Though the Holy Spirit lives in us and is remaking us, there is no guarantee of change in this life. To give you a different example to make the point, there is no guarantee either that God will heal someone of cancer if we pray. Sometimes he does, doesn't he? In extraordinary ways that even the most committed of doctors can't explain. Sometimes he does. Should we pray? Of course. But there's no guarantee that change will happen. What we ought to expect, however, is that for all of us, we will become less sinful over time. That's what progressive growth in godliness means. And that's a comment about conduct, not attraction or orientation. I'm convinced the hope of the gospel is that our struggle to master our sinful desires, well, it gets less hard with years. 
Our struggle to master simple desires gets less hard with years as we're captured by that vision of what God is doing in us, even if we never fully master those desires in this life. So again, to give you a different illustration, here's my particular confession. Uh, My struggle is not with same-sex attraction. That's not something that I've had to deal with. Here's my struggle. My struggle is, is with impatience and with being impatient with other people who don't help me to build my kingdom, who don't meet my needs and my desires when I have them. It's less so than when I first became a believer at the age of 16, but it's still a struggle because I assume that, well, the Holy Spirit who lives in me still has not finished his work of making me to be more and more like Christ. So should we pray for healing? Yes, but without expecting there's a guarantee that God will answer every prayer. That's actually how we pray generally, is it not? So over the page then, second pastoral question, why won't God heal me? Why? This is the question that comes next, isn't it? Particularly if you are someone who struggles in this way. Lord, I long to live a godly and chaste life. I long to be free of these desires and attractions. Why won't you make me more and more like Christ now that I might not be tempted to fall? This is very hard. Uh, Wesley Hill is an American Christian uh, theologian who struggles with same-sex attraction. He would say he's same-sex oriented. Uh, He lectures in a fine Bible college in America. Here's what he says. He says that after many years of fervent prayer to God, that God would take away these desires from him, not just his prayers, but the prayers of those who love him, who long to see him set free from such trial and tribulation, after many years of praying, he's come to accept that God probably won't heal him of this in this life. His conclusion is that God wants him to live his life as a celibate Christian who nevertheless has homosexual attractions and orientation. He says that is terribly hard. But at least he knows what his struggle is. And he knows that God's grace has been and will always be sufficient for him. Now, another way of saying this is that in the end, what I think each of us long for is to see the work of God displayed in our lives. That's what we want, isn't it? To see God at work in our lives and through us to influence the lives of others. Uh, So, you think of that episode in John chapter 5 where Jesus meets a man born blind. You know that episode? As man born blind, people say to him, why was this man born blind? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? Do you remember Jesus' answer? His answer is, neither. But this happened, Jesus says, so that the work of God might be seen in this man's life. And if that's the case, then I think the question of why am I this way, why won't God heal me of this particular uh, desire, uh, this particular issue that I'm trying to deal with, the question of how did I get to be here is actually less important than how will I respond. Uh, C.S. Lewis uh, puts it this way. Uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, author of the fabulous Narnia Chronicles. Have a look at the passage that I printed there for you. It's a longish passage, but it's worth making your way through because it's incredibly 
pastoral and profound what he says. C.S. Lewis will actually go so far as to say that brokenness, sexual brokenness, can be a gift from God. Have a look. Our speculations on the cause of homosexuality, that's the abnormality he's referring to, our speculations on the cause of homosexuality are what matters, and we must be content with ignorance. The disciples weren't told why, in terms of efficient cause, the man was born blind, only the final cause, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This suggests that in homosexuality, as in every other tribulation, those works can be made manifest. That is, every disability conceals a vocation, if only we can find it, which will turn the necessity to glorious gain. What Lewis is saying, I think, and he's right, I think, is that everything that we suffer in is nevertheless an opportunity to demonstrate the work of God and to glorify Jesus. I think this is particularly comforting for those of us who can't understand how something has come about. Perhaps to Christian parents who can't understand why their child has same-sex attraction. You know the heartache that's involved here. The parent wonders, was it something that we did? Was it something that we failed to do? Instead, what Lewis is reminding us is, in, is that rather than trying to explain why, the real question is, how will we respond? So I want to ask you today, what's your disability? To use the language that Lewis is using. What's the thing that you struggle with in terms of your godliness? What might be your glorious gain? Would you be prepared to publicly admit what your struggle is that you might get help from Christian brothers and sisters who love you, who want the best for you, and who want to see the works of God made manifest in your life. Let me finish with some practical application. Point three. Let me say three things here. Firstly, if you're not a believer, uh, for the last time, I do hope that you've heard me say that Christians acknowledge that we are all sinful, we are all broken, we're all like bouquets, not pot plants, which means that if you're here as someone who's not a Christian, I am so sorry if you've been looked down on by other Christians as if somehow they were perfect in the way in which they clearly think you are not. If this is your situation, if you're someone who's not a Christian, can I please encourage you, try and work out who Jesus claims to be it's tempting in an area, when, uh, in a topic like same-sex attraction, to instead jump to what does Jesus have to say about sexuality? Can I say that's not the most important question? I actually think the most important question is, is Jesus who he claims to be? He claims to be the Son of God who laid down his life to take away our sins. If you don't think that's true, to be honest, you might as well ignore everything Jesus has to say, including the stuff that he has to say about sexuality. On the other hand... If he is who he claims to be, I trust you can see that there is so much more at stake than simply who are you attracted to. Again, to give you an, an illustration, uh, I mentioned before that uh, 
I work particularly with young adults uh, and with university students. So as a result, we've done lots of weddings over the years. Um, I reckon I've probably done 35 to 40 weddings. Um, and part of the reason we do that is because, uh, now, this won't surprise you, our church has the longest aisle in Adelaide. <laughs> as I've been informed by a number of brides who've come to use our church, uh, the longest aisle in Adelaide. Uh, and so we actually get lots of people who come to our church to get married who aren't Christian, but they just want to use the building, which at one level we're happy to do. When I sit down with a couple who aren't Christian, who've come along to use the building to get married, to prepare them for the wedding day and for marriage, um, first thing I'll ask them is if they're Christian. And if they say they're not, um, well, here's what my second question is not. My second question is not, are you sleeping together? Now, there's a number of reasons why I don't ask that. I mean, it'd be a little bit rude, but more to the point, it's not primary. If they're not Christian, I'm less concerned about are they living together, I'm more concerned about them coming to know who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And so, in this area, if you're someone here today who's not a believer but you're struggling with same-sex attraction, can I invite you afterwards? Uh, come and have a chat with myself, have a chat with Graham, with the minister here. Uh, talk with him and ask him about who Jesus is because that's, that's actually the thing that we want you to hear more than anything else. Second thing, uh, practical application. If you are a believer, so I'm at this point addressing the members of this church. I'm sure this is not an issue in a wonderful place like Robertson, but I, I just want to remind us, as Christians, there is no place for homophobia or for crude jokes in this topic, in this area. Uh, that's not just because people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. Uh, that is, we're all broken, right? We're all broken in some way. We've all fallen short of God's glory. Uh, but it's actually because if we judge or ignore those who struggle with same-sex attraction, then to be frank, why would anyone who struggles with same-sex attraction ever set foot in our church? If they don't think they'll find love here and acceptance here, is it any wonder that they'll look elsewhere for, for a place to belong? Let me ask you, which community do you think is going to be more welcoming of people with same-sex attraction in Australia today? The church or the gay and lesbian community? If we Christians won't show love, those who struggle will look elsewhere for it. And so Mark Yarhouse, who I've referred to a couple of times, that American researcher and psychologist, he says, he asks, whose people are we talking about when we talk about people with same-sex attraction? Whose people are we talking about? They're ours. They're part of the body of Christ. I'll tell you a story. Uh, the story is about uh, an English woman, uh, and sorry, an American woman who taught English. Uh, her name is Rosaria Butterfield. She's written a book uh, called Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And the way this story goes is that um, she was a professor of gender studies uh, in an American university and also a lesbian. And at uh, one point, a number of years ago, she chose to write a letter to the editor of the local newspaper basically attacking conservative Christians as a result, she got two piles of mail sent to her. This won't surprise you at all. There was a pile of mail which she described as fan mail, that is, from other people who were gay and lesbian who wanted to say, well done for sticking, up, sticking it to those Christians. 
and another pile of mail, which she called hate mail. Guess who that came from? Came from a whole bunch of Christians, of course. And what she would do is that she sorted the mail that flowed in for a number of weeks into two piles on her desk in her study. This pile's getting bigger and bigger. Until she got one letter that was written to her from a church pastor. And all he did in his letter was that he asked her, how did you come to your conclusions? How did you know that what you're doing was right? Had you ever thought about a belief in God? He didn't once try to criticise her, simply asked her to share her story with him. She said, it was the kindest letter of opposition I've ever received. And her problem was she didn't know which pile it belonged in, the fan mail or the hate mail. So she threw it in the bin. And at the end of the day got it out again because it kept bugging her. And the next day she threw it in the bin and got it out again and it went on that way for a week until finally she rang the pastor and in God's kindness, well, the book is called Secret Light Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. She came to know the Lord Jesus. Is it at all possible, do you think, that someone in this community here has been hiding their struggles with unwanted same-sex attraction because they fear that they'll be ostracised if they're known to be different? And if that's the case, who are they more likely to tell? A Christian who might possibly reject them or someone in the gay community who they know will be for them, embrace them, uphold them, endorse them. That's the reason why we had the Ecclesiastes passage. If you've been wondering, Ecclesiastes 4 verses 9 and 10, two are better than one. If one falls, the other will pick them up. Actually, it's one of those famous and popular wedding texts, isn't it? You hear it at weddings all the time. It's a good thing to have read at weddings, I suppose. But what I want to say today is that the primary way that God deals with the problem of our loneliness is not marriage. Only some get married. The primary way that God deals with our aloneness is through church. God's community should be a place where people can be open, not secretive. And so Wesley Hill, that American um, New Testament professor I referred to before, the one who's acknowledged that God is probably not going to free him of his same-sex desires. He tells the story of how when he was at Bible college and he came out uh, to his, one of his professors explaining what was going on, he says that his professor, and I quote him here, he gave him the gift of being unsurprised. He gave him the gift of being unsurprised. How wonderful that from that moment on, he was not consigned to having to deal with his struggle on his own, but that he knew others were willing to walk with him and to love him with the love of Christ. Uh, it's my understanding, actually, that loneliness is one of the hardest things for Christians who struggle with same-sex attraction, who want to live a godly life. So today, if this is you, I want to say you are not alone in choosing to say no to sinful desires. And I want to encourage you, please talk to Graham or to one of the elders here. Uh, I've put them on notice now. They're ready to talk with you. Please talk with them. Because even if they're a little bit lost for words, they will thank you for your honesty. And they will promise 
to do their very best to ensure that you are loved the way Christ loves us and to help you live for him. And so the third and final thing I want to say is if you're a Christian leader in this community here, uh, there's a whole bunch of things I've referred to along the way, but particularly what I want to say to the leadership here is uh, I think you have been given a responsibility to equip and to train the whole body here to stand firm when the world around us is saying a very different message. And you'll say that in much of different ways. Uh, here's one reflection that I've had in the last year or so. Uh, this is actually on the topic of same-sex and marriage. Um, I think it's one thing for us to train adults in how we respond to questions to do with same-sex marriage, but you know it's much bigger than that. I mentioned before we have a 13-year-old son. Last year, in the public high school that he goes to in South Australia, uh, the gay and lesbian club were given official permission from the school to run a fundraising day. Now, let's put aside the fact that if the Christian club had asked for such permission, you could be sure they would not have been granted it. But when my son came home and told us, it made me realise we actually have to start with our children in explaining to them how the world around is different and how we respond with grace and love. How do we work out how, as a community, we respond to this nonsense that's going on in the paper, at the, in, the, in the media at the moment? And there's nonsense about whole companies that are for same-sex marriage. I don't know how that could possibly be, how a company can be for same-sex marriage. But we need to work out how we, as a community, are prepared and equipped to respond so that we don't ignore it but actually we see the opportunity to be able to demonstrate the love of Christ which covers all our sins for all who are broken to those around us. I have well used up my time there. I will stop at this point. Let me lead us in prayer. And can I say oh, a couple of things? Firstly, um, now some of you I think, did you get a leaflet like this in your handouts? No, you okay, at the front door you'll see a little brochure um, for something called Liberty. If you look at the bottom of your handout that I gave you originally, um, I've given you some further reading. Um, there's a wealth of books you can read, and I recognise that most people don't have time to read lots. I've given you just three. If you only had time for one, I'd read the very first one by Sam Albury called Is God Anti-Gay? It is brilliant for two reasons. One is uh, it is very profound, and the other is it's very short. So, you know, I'm all for short, profound things. Um, oh, and the third reason is it's cheap. So there you go. Is God Anti-Gay? That's as good a book as any to read. There's a couple of websites at the bottom. The one on the left, Living Hope Essay, that's a reference to the ministry that we've set up in South Australia. That won't be of particular relevance to you here in, in New South Wales. But Liberty Sydney, uh, which is the other reference, they are a ministry who've been set up to care for those who struggle with same-sex attraction and to support families who have members who are LGBT+. And you can find some information about them, Liberty, uh, at the door afterwards. Uh, they've sent us some brochures for today. Let me pray and we'll finish this part of our time together. Uh, I'm going to pray using these great words from Charles Wesley. Uh, Lord Jesus, finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee lost in wonder, love and praise. Amen.